Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. You are listening to Do I Make You Uncomfortable with Morgan and Sarah. I'm Morgan and that's Sarah. <laughs> uh, we actually have a really, really cool episode for you today. And I'm really, really excited. This is the first time I've got to meet him. I'm actually going to let Sarah introduce him. Um, but we're doing a bit of an interview. Sarah has been chosen with this person to be a keynote speaker at our Crime Victims Rights Conference. And She's a phenomenal speaker. I've got to listen to her and present alongside her. And so what we're going to be doing tonight is kind of preparing them next week, but also asking some questions during the podcast. If it doesn't make you too uncomfortable, Charlie. <laughs> uh, Sarah, I'll let you take it away and um, introduce him. But before I do that, I do want to give you a content warning. There is some deep conversations about murder um, in this podcast. So please, please, please take care of yourself. Um, and I'll give it to Sarah. So today uh, we have Charlie with us. Charlie is my stepdad. Charlie, say hello. Hey, hey everybody. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> um, so Charlie is Charlie Otero. Um, and so anybody who may have grown up in the Wichita area probably knows who Charlie is. Um, but uh, we're going to kind of get into our history and, and his story and all that kind of stuff. But first, we always ask every guest, what makes you uncomfortable? Uh, what makes me uncomfortable? It could be is, funny. Is probably um, being caught uh, naked outside. Yeah, absolutely. That would make me. Has that happened to you more than once, Charlie? <laughs> Not that I don't go naked outside. I just don't want to get caught. He just doesn't want to get caught naked outside. <laughs> I like that. That's that's probably the best answer we've had yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my answer was uh, when somebody cusses around my grandma. Like, I get really uncomfortable when people cuss around my grandma. I'm like, <sighs> okay. So we're going to talk today about our our um, presentation that we're doing, um, and it's called the True Face of Trauma. And so, um, Charlie, I think. You know, when we start the at the conference and everything, they're going to introduce us. They'll probably read our bios, likely. Um, so I think just a quick introduction of, hey, that's me. That's me in that picture <laughs> sort of thing. Okay. Um, and then me. Hi. Um, so anyway, so we're here um, speaking today and on the on the podcast. Um, the couple of the main objectives that we had kind of for this presentation was understanding how like the neurobiology of trauma works and then uh, know how trauma can kind of shape our lives now and then in the future. So back in the 1990s, uh, and I don't know, do you know the history of the ACE study? Did I tell you about it or anything? Okay, so back in the 1990s, and I last time I spoke, I said back in the 1900s, the late 1900s. <laughs> Please do that again, because that was a good little nugget. I know. <laughs> back in the late 1900s, um, they, Kaiser Permanente did a study. It was through their family medicine or internal medicine doctors group where they sent out surveys to a bunch of their patients because what they started to notice was that their patients um, that were having like heart disease, diabetes, um, cancer, all that kind of stuff, had COPD, this, COPD yeah. had this long history of childhood trauma. And so they came up with 10 questions and those 10 questions um, the higher you rate on the score, the score, the higher you ranked, 
the more likely you were to develop one of these, you know, comorbidities or diseases or something like that later. And the thing that like really got me on this study was that I can understand like later on having addiction problems and things like that from the coping mechanisms of your trauma. But um, I didn't understand the why on cancer and diabetes and heart disease and those kind of things. And it's really because that trauma as a child, especially physically changes the way that your brain forms later on. So along with the ACE study is the neurobiology of trauma, which is kind of like this big word for, so neurobiology of trauma is kind of like this big overarching study that we've done is how the brain and how the person reacts in the moment. So this isn't the later on stuff. This is in the moment stuff and how your brain works and how you respond to trauma. And this is where that whole fight, fight, or freeze comes up which we've talked about before in your situation and everything. And so the important things to understand with the neurobiology of trauma is you can try and train yourself to respond a certain way, but your brain is going to pick the way that you're going to respond in that moment. And so like as a military person, like Morgan was trained over and over and over and over a specific way on how to respond but in the moment, it didn't really 100% matter because your brain's going to pick what you're going to do, right? So I personally um, am always a freeze. I freeze every single time. It's it's never not been a freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple times I am froze. I, I'm laughing because literally today I was scared twice while I was in the bathroom. And, and I almost, almost punched somebody. Didn't I you? almost threw my my makeup brush at Brooklyn and I almost punched Spencer when he came in so Mm -hmm. yeah 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 yeah. so she's always a fight I'm always a freeze and kind of your brain kind of picks that a lot of it is based off of your coping mechanisms and kind of like what you've been trained up in like how to respond to that trauma and so as we're younger and everybody experiences trauma right but my trauma is not the same as your trauma is not the same as anybody else's trauma, right? So what I think is traumatic may not be as traumatic for you, um, but it's all based off of like that past history of trauma coming in. And it's all based off of your coping mechanisms. So because military, because Morgan was like in the military, her fight is very, very strong, right? (laughs) Because I was a scared child and that was my coping mechanism was just to stand there and be scared. That's my coping mechanism. I freeze every time. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of your um, trauma responses throughout from the day that everything happened till today, kind of like a throughout the lifespan on kind of what your trauma responses were. Okay. Um, And just so everybody knows, um, I do, we aren't going to go into details of what happened that day or anything like that. Um, For those that aren't already aware that um, Charlie's family was tragically, tragically murdered by um, the serial killer BTK. And so, um, and he had the unfortunate 
task of walking in that day um, after it all happened. So we're going to talk about that, but we're not going to launch into details. I don't need details about what you saw, all of that jazz. Um, I think it's important to keep those boundaries um, and to state those boundaries ahead of time. Okay. So just kind of tell me, you know, we, we kind of talked about a little bit about like who you were at that point, like where you were in your life, like how old were you and where you were in your life at that point? Okay. Um, so uh, when all this went down and my family was killed, I was 15 years old. I had been living overseas for the last seven years. And we're out over in Panama. In Panama. In, in, in paradise, basically. Yeah, right? uh, so you came to the, Kansas. We, yeah. We had the lowest death rate in the world. It was in Guinness Book of Records. We had the highest rate of bathtub per capita in the world. So we were the cleanest, safest people in the world. Most alive people ever. And then we moved. And everything changed. Uh, I went from cell phone fell. That's fine. I went from a boy. I was a boy scout, ultra boy, straight A, 4.0 student. The day my family was killed, and all that went straight down the drain in about about oh probably a couple of milliseconds. And you guys were in Panama because your dad was in the military. Yeah, my dad was an air commando and, and in the air force. And he got stationed down there and decided he was going to stay as long as he could. And we did. It was great. Yeah. And you'll notice that up here I put that it was a snowy, nasty day. Um, and so <laughs> here goes here goes Charlie living in paradise in Bam Panama near the equator. <laughs> and then snowy, nasty day in Kansas. Like two different worlds, right? <laughs> well, yeah, wow. that day I walked home from school and uh, the snow was like, knee deep and blowing in my face and I was like what am I doing here and I walked up to the house and saw the, uh, my garage door open and I figured it was my chance to jump my mom's case because you know now I got to shovel snow I walked into the door and my world changed instantly uh, I ran to the back saw my mom and my dad dead and it physically felt like somebody had ripped my chest open and yanked my heart out it, the pain and I, I instantly ran into the kitchen grabbed a knife started yelling and getting ready to go through the house then I realized that my brother and sister were there and I had to get them out of the house and when he says his brother and sister so Charlie has um he had five it was five kids total um Go yeah. ahead and tell the order. Yeah, um, I was the oldest, and there was uh, Danny and Carmen and Joey and Josie. Um, Danny and Carmen had actually got to the house before me. They were in the room when I walked in. I don't know how many minutes they were there before me. Not very many. They were pretty traumatized. And uh, my, my dad had already kind of prepared me for this kind of stuff. So I knew what to do instantly. What to do next was never a question in my mind. I knew exactly what to do, um, and we. I took them them outside after I realized I needed to safeguard them first. We went outside, and Danny went next door to make a phone call to the police because our phone wasn't working in the house. The phone lines had been cut, and uh, a police officer pulled up and came outside. Came to us. We were sitting out in the yard, and he said, "What's going on?" I said, uh, "Go in the house. You'll see." And the cop went into the house. 
he came back out and said, uh, could your father have done that? And I knew exactly what he was talking about because, you know, at that time in 1974, Wichita was black and white. I was in a bus school, went Southeast High, 50% black, 50% white, and me in the middle. Uh, it really, when he said that, I lost all respect for law and order, and it went out the door for the next 30 years. Uh, to me, he was the enemy. I almost stuck the knife I had in my hand in him, and that feeling stayed with me forever. And uh, thankfully, thank God it's not there now. <laughs> right. Right. I, you know, I've, I've relearned a lot. But uh, at that point, we were taking out of the house and uh, or out of the area and taking to the police department for further questioning. So you notice, too, that when he talks about like the initial response that he had, again, like that conditioned response inside of him was fight. Right. He grabbed that knife immediately and he was ready to go and ready to ball. Um, now, backing up a little bit, um, Charlie's younger two siblings were still in the house when all of this happened. Um, and so you you fortunately never saw your siblings, correct? I never saw Joey and Josie. No, I didn't know they were in the house and dead uh, until we were at the police department and that's a whole another story yeah and so his immediate reaction is fight and then uh papa bear like okay let's get the kids out let's let's figure out what we need to do you know danny made the good good um, response of calling the police and so you know charlie talks about the whole black and white thing and um I do think that it might be good for us to put, if you don't mind, put a picture of your family in here yeah. at that point, because Charlie's dad was very dark skinned yeah. and his mom was very light skinned. Yeah. And so um, I think that the thought process was, was that his dad had come home and there was a dark skinned man there with his mom. And so they didn't realize that that was actually his dad. Yeah, it was just one police officer and he's just talking out of, out of his mouth. And, and for me, it was like what I say, um, when a person goes through that kind of trauma, they're like, they're, their emotions are like a fertile ground. You drop the seed and it's going to grow crazy. And my, my I was fertile and he dropped that I hate cop seed mm -hmm. on me by just for saying that because my, my dad was tied up. Right. How could he have done it? Right. That he, the cop gave him his, his his ideas away right away, verbally, and created a hater in from me. I I instantly went to hate. And so the people that were there to protect Charlie and his siblings obviously immediately were the enemies, right? And so there's a whole lot of coping mechanisms that have to kick in at that point. Um, and so you guys were taken to the police department and you guys were fingerprinted. Oh yeah. All the kids were fingerprinted and taken in. Were you guys together or did they separate you guys out? Oh, you know, you after, at that point, when once I got into the cop car and left my house, it, it was really a blur. It's like an acid trip. Yeah. Um, speaking from experience, uh, it, it, it is very foggy, but certain parts stand out like lightning bolts. 
but the mo most of it is foggy. And uh, they took us down. That's where I learned. Once they took us to uh, fingerprint us, they uh, took us to the police station. At that point, it was a different spot. And um, then they, I kept asking for my brother, my sister, Joey and Josie. I said, they got to be here. I don't want them going to the house. I need them with me right now because, you know, I had been trained to be the macho, the oldest. I was supposed to be in charge. And uh, at some one point, a chaplain came up to me with a, a captain, and they said, we have to tell you they're both in the house and they're dead, too. And that feeling that I had of my chest being ripped wide open, it just happened again. And I the next day is just a giant blur. And what in those situations, um, what we've learned is that when that trauma starts to happen, your brain takes over. So there's there's multiple, my son, Bradley, always describes it as your owl and your security guard, okay? So your owl is the wise part of your brain that sits on the top of your brain in your frontal lobe. And that's the one that functions on a daily basis, right? That's the one that helps you make all of your rational decisions and lay down memories. Uh, and then your security guard is your um, kind of like your uh, primitive brain is the word I'm looking for, your primitive brain. And that's the one that makes sure that your body's functioning. Um, and so when your primitive brain gets turned on, it's to safeguard you. So you don't remember those things. And so it's not surprising that you say that you have no memory of that time because your brain has legitimately not laid those memories down. You will likely never, ever remember those things. And I did ask Charlie at one point, like if he had any sort of things that kind of, um, can I say that triggered? Is that okay? Yeah, you can say, yes. You triggered. Can, you can say I can say it's triggered. triggered. I just can't say Or triggered. that activated. Um, that's what, that's what, yeah. That activated him. I, I've asked him previously, though, if there's anything that's, you know, activated it. Like, you know, um, to me, you know, when we talk to when we talk to survivors um, at the hospital, if they can't remember what happened in that moment, we start asking, what did you smell? What did you feel? What did you hear? And so I asked him, you know, do you have any sense of like, you know, if you smell a cup of coffee because they their breakfast was still on the table um and so I was like if you smell coffee does it you know you know make anything come back does it make memories rush in and he doesn't really have any anything like that really um uh but so but it's not surprising that that memory is not there because your brain is safeguarding that time for you Mm -hmm. I, I understand that. I can see that. Yeah. And so then from there, you guys kind of got pulled well, out. Well, the story gets wilder after that. <laughs> it's, it's, it gets that's not crazy wild. enough. Yeah. Wow. Um, How does it get wilder? I mean, it's wild well, enough, right? I'm ready. I, I'm I, here. I'm, you aren't ready. <laughs> I'm not ready. Do you really want to hear all this? Do you have time for this? I don't know. Because uh, what happened was, uh, that, that night, I got a phone call from uh, Senator Kennedy, who was the uh, chairman of the Armed Forces Committee, and he asked me what I needed. We were in McConnell Air Force Base on a, in a house in the housing part of the base uh, surrounded by uh, air police and with some people that we knew from Panama that we had run into when we moved to Wich the Wichita area. 
So I asked, he asked me what he could do for me. And I said, I have four bodies to bury. I have no money and I'll be damned if I want my family buried in Wichita. I want them buried in Puerto Rico. Um, I found out 30 years later that they were flown on Air Force One and buried in a National Military Cemetery in Puerto Rico, too deep. And uh, I've never been there. And that's another story. Uh, but we went to Puerto Rico for the funeral. They moved us. The first they came, the feds came to my grandparents' house while we were in the house and told us we weren't safe there, that we had to leave. I asked them if I'm not safe in my grandparents' house in another country, where am I going to be safe? Uh, he said, just come with us. So we went with him. They put us in three hotels in 24 hours, basically. Uh, the last, the second to last hotel, we went uh, in the hotel up the stairs, down the hall, out the back door into a waiting car, got into it, got into the car and went to the San Juan Caribe Hilton, where they put us in a bungalow with empty bungalows next to us, surrounded by armed guards. And just as I was getting ready to go to the funeral, we got, I got a phone call in the bungalow saying that if I went to the uh, funeral, there'd be automatic weapons fire, many people will die. So at that point, I'm like, he's I'm 15, not going. by the way, he's 15. Uh, at that point, I'm like, I am not going to his funeral. There were over 4,000 people there, and most of them were family. So the, the Fed, I, I don't know if he was federal agent or CIA, OSI, whoever he was, he asked me about the phone call, and I told him, he goes, what do you want to do? I said, I'm not going to funeral. So we planned a ruse on my brother and sister. I just told him, I don't want to go. We don't have to go. Do you want to go? And Danny and Carmen both said, no, we don't want to go either. We don't want to see all those people. So we got on an airplane and flew back to Wichita and for a, a custody hearing. And I already knew what to do then. My dad had told me what to do if anything happened to him and my mom. Another strange coincidence. And so I knew what to do and where to go. And that's what I did. We moved, went to Albuquerque to live with some uh, lifelong friends. Holy shit. How how old were Danny and Carmen when you were there? This is like 15. One, my mom was a good Catholic. Uh, <laughs> one year apart. Uh, one, uh, one a year. Dan, <laughs> one a year. Was... So 15, 14, and 13. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. So you've never been to your parents' graves? No, we couldn't go then. And um, the, uh, no, I've never been there. I've had oh friends God. go there and take pictures for me. But no, I physically, you, that's, that's a dream of mine one day. Ago. I was going to ask you, is that something that do you feel oh, like you, one, don't have closure and, and do you want to do it? So obviously when you do it, do oh, you yeah. feel like you haven't had any closure from not being able to go? Oh yeah. That, that's yeah. one of the things I don't, I'll, I'll probably, you know, I, I can get closure at, for that. Yeah. But yeah. Um, as far as like other stuff, yeah, I'll, I'll be oh, able sure. to see it. I'm just amazed that like, you know, these little details that, that you go through, like, these things that you experienced, you were 15, 14 or 13. So like your brain isn't even developed to be able to handle these things at that point. So no wonder, right? Like no right. wonder, you, no chose, wonder there's... you chose the things that you did. Yeah. Wow. And so that kind of leads us into like, from there, like after as you started kind of growing up, did you remain that 4.0 student? Did you keep it up? You know, that kind of stuff. Well, initially, uh, things like uh, I went, we went to high school in, in, in New Mexico. 
Um, you know, me and my my dad and my brother, we had this thing where we built model airplanes together. We painted the little pilots and hung them on a on the ceiling. And my dad was an avid model builder for airplanes. He'd been in the Air Force and flying mm -hmm. competition little airplanes on, on wire. So models. So um when I got to and I had aspired to be the youngest pilot in the nation. Uh, I was going to get my license on my birthday. And because I already know how to flew, fly with my dad, I practicing with my dad. So um, it all went away. I didn't want to be near airplanes. I took aviation class and got a D minus. But what I did in school is I would get straight A's for nine weeks and a straight F's for nine weeks. And I came out with a C every time. So I was going to graduate, but, you know, with no effort. Because the schooling I had had was so good. I didn't have to study. I didn't have to do anything. I just breezed right through. At that point, I had a photographic memory. I could read a book as fast as you can run your finger down the pages and tell you what page, what chapter, where the pictures were, all that. Um, and that all was still in me going through high school. I graduated. I decided I was going to go to college um, and become the first Puerto Rican in space. So I took a laser electro-optics course so I could get on the shuttle program as a laser technician. And right about then, the PTSD was starting to kick in a little bit. I was starting to um, rebel a little. I was kind of a re rebel all the time, but it started creeping in. I started doing drugs, started drinking, um, trying to forget what the memories that were coming to me. There wasn't enough beer on this planet. There wasn't enough dope in this world to make me forget for very long. Um, I'd come out of a stupor. And my friends would tell me like, whoa, you went off yesterday or you went, and I'm like, I don't remember any of it um, most of the time. I still have reports to this day when I go visit my friends, they'll bring up something. Remember that? No. 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 <laughs> so, um, yeah, I I started rebelling and I, I ended up racing motorcycles because that was my first love was motorcycles. And it gave me a chance to be a rebel and people cheered. You know, I could run somebody over and it's all part of the program. So I got to be violent without going to jail. Right. And so I was, and, and I didn't care if I got hurt or not. It, it didn't, I didn't feel, there was no pain in my world. I didn't feel pain at that point. It, it was not an issue for me to crash my brains out, get up, pop my arm back in place and continue the race. And so um, that's that's how I lived for the next 30 years. And when you said that your PTSD started to kick in, were you having like flashback memories or was it like, was it kind of like we talked about, was there certain things that activated it or was it just in your own head, you know, sort of? I think at that point, my um, attitude had gone dark. You know, I, I wasn't evil. I, I didn't steal. I didn't lie. I didn't cheat. I didn't rape, pillage or burn. But I, I took, you know, I, I, I found fun in somebody tripping Somebody falling. I find fun in that you now. Know, that kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> I and, then I would, I, and I would do things like get mad if I saw a family all happy and holding their hands and, and then be like, don't they know that life sucks and the world's fixing to get ruined? Why are they so dang happy? That's the kind of attitude I had for quite a long time. And, and I went out of my way to, to hurt bad people. If you were in trouble and you have somebody hassling you, if, if my friends would tell you, Paul Charlie, I'd show up with guns and dogs. 
Charlie raised pit bulls um, and bred pit bulls for a while. And Dobermans. And Dobermans, yeah. Two of the meanest oh. dogs out there, supposedly. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> now I got a Chihuahua. <laughs> okay. This is oh, second well. Chihuahua. Now they they actually are the meanest dogs out there, though. So that's those ones are. You know, yeah, they really are the meanest dogs out there. Hence, yeah. I want a pit wawa. Yeah, <laughs> he wants a pit wawa. Pit wawa. Okay, I would like to see that crossbreed. I'm not sure that I would like to see that because of the jaw strength of a pit bull <laughs> and the bite bitiness of a chihuahua. Yeah, I don't that's, think that's those... <laughs> you can buy them. They're online. I'm sure you can buy them. <laughs> you can buy them. I don't want to. I don't want to. So, but were you having? when that PTSD was happening though you weren't having like flashback memories no 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 I never had flashback memories of any of it um, okay. at that point at that point at that point I, I I didn't have that issue now this is going to be kind of a I I think everybody already knows the answer to this but did you have therapy or any sort of outlet like that motorcycles were my therapy i had nothing i didn't yeah no therapy you know they asked me do i want to go see a psychologist i'm like why what is he going to do tell me my family's dead i already know that right he can't fix it he can't fix the only thing i wanted in the whole world was the only thing i could not have my Mm -hmm. family i didn't want anything else i didn't want money i didn't want anything right i just wanted them and i couldn't have it and that was the harsh reality that hurt the most of all what kind of a connection or relationship did you have with your brother and sister at this time? Because, you know, you say you wanted you wanted your family. And, of course, like that grief process, you want you want the family that you don't have. But uh, did they also experience what you were experiencing? We you know, you know, that is one of the, the, the wild things about that whole thing is we went our, we went separate ways. Carmen found her 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 uh, love of her life at right within a year and stayed with him till he passed away two years ago um, found her found him when she was 15 16 16 yeah okay. she, I, she in New Mexico 16 yeah mm-hmm. and uh Danny um uh adhered himself to the family that we went to go live with um he took my uncle John and just well they were like two peas in a pod together i mean they hung out they still to up until a couple of months ago and he was still regularly you know seeing uncle john and so and and i kind of went my way with the motorcycles because it's a singular thing you know i I wasn't trying to be in a gang or anything i was racing them and it was me against the world and that's kind of how i stayed you kind of talk about them you know like recently did you come back together uh, oh no you know we stayed in touch i i mean i did go like one for one period i was so out there i was uh gone from the family for over 10 years i i can remember times where i wouldn't even go into a public place besides a bar for months at a time i couldn't tell you what month it was sometimes i couldn't tell you what year it was nor did i care mm-hmm. because for me it was like paint love sucks yeah. Right. You love somebody and all it does is bring you pain. I wouldn't, I didn't tell anybody I love them for 20, 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't use that word. I didn't use that word because it's like you love them and they die. Then now what? Exactly. Uh, you're left with just a bunch of pain. So why love anything? Yeah. Yeah. And the fear to lose them as well. And since you so tragically lost. Exactly. It makes sense. It makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, I have this slide about religion gone. Do we want to talk about religion at all? Do you think? Uh, yeah, it's very important to me. Yeah, because you were raised, like you said, your mom was a very diligent Catholic woman. You were raised with that religion in your life, right? You guys. Yeah, I ended up before we left Panama. I was a head altar boy. I was the guy who stuck the little plate under your mouth and catch the Holy Communion from hitting the floor. Me, I was using a chance to see everybody's tongues, you know. They're, they're, they're so wrong. <laughs> uh, and so then at the moment, you know, during that day at the time, you said things were gone. Oh, the minute I looked at my mother, I hated God. I, I didn't not believe in him anymore. I hated him. Right. And and that's that attitude stuck with me for for a long time. I I can tell you the day it went away, but um, it's just in, ingrained in me instantly that I hated God. I I went and uh, did a speaking engagement in the Dodge City uh, uh, prison. No, at the university there there. Um, Criminal the justice community yeah, the criminal yeah, the, justice, yeah, the and criminal the justice department yeah. there at Dodge City, and I did my presentation. And when I do these things, I just go, I, I just, just go. I don't think sure. about what I'm going to say; it just comes out of my mouth. And uh, the next morning, I got up and went downstairs, and the newspaper was there with a big frontal page, front page photo of me, and right above it, in giant letters said, "I hate God." That's that's what came off of that. The quote that they oh, took out, of course, it is. Yeah, I should have kept that paper. It was great. <laughs> of course, they go to explain it later what I meant, but because I did get back to my religion, and as I don't know if you want to call it religion, but spirituality, I believe in Absolutely. God again, and I believe in the power of prayer, and I, I believe in goodness and all that. And it came to me um, over over the years that I was an outlaw, um, things were happening, and I didn't see them, and and. If you want to talk about the religious part of, my, of this whole journey for me, the day of sentencing for BTK, I had planned to get my revenge on him in the front of the whole world by committing this a heinous crime. And on my way through the um, metal detector, I was stopped because my son had been hit by a car while we were out. And it was going to be the first time I was ever going to meet him with a was supposed to be the next day and he was in a coma and this is sentencing on his birthday 18th birthday and his name is my father's name is my brother's name he's you know it's like very very heavy instantly a woman stuck a microphone in my face and said charlie the world's praying for you and i said don't pray for me pray for my son he's just been hit by a car and he's in a coma so after that, when I got on the plane, first off, when we went into the courtroom, I had my opportunity and I couldn't go through with it because all I could think about was how can I ask God to save my son when I'm going to do this crime? So instantly, all need for revenge that I had had for 30 something years was gone. It just wow. was gone. wasn't there anymore. And that was super heavy, you know, and I that's didn't heavy on, think, that's heavy right now. Like, yeah, I can imagine it's heavy right like right now, just listening to it. And then I didn't think nothing of it all, except for, you know, this is what I got to do. 
So I got on an airplane and when I was at the airport, a woman came up to me and said, hey, Charlie, um, we saw you on the news and uh, we're, we're praying for your son. I said, oh, were you in Wichita? She said, no, I was in Rhode Island. I said, wow. So I got on another airplane, went to Minnesota. My kid was in Wisconsin in the hospital. We went to Minnesota and in that airport, I had another woman come up to me and say, I'm praying for your son. I said, oh, were you in Wichita? She said, no, I was in Alaska. So I'm having all these people come to me on this 24-hour journey I'm having to get to my son who are praying for him from all over the country and probably from all over the world. And later on in, in my life, I realized that the prayers, from I, I truly believe those prayers saved my son because he awoke a newborn child months later from a coma. Wow. And how, how old was, was Joe at that point? He's, he had turned 18. Yeah. It was his 18th birthday when we got hit. Wow. Yeah. Now, you said that once you hit the metal detector and you had a plan for the sentencing day, did you take a weapon in with you? Or? I made one. I, I, went to, I, I did he four was, years in prison. He was I, in prison. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't know that. I did four <laughs> years for attempting to... They said I attempted to kill my wife, a retired judge. So I'm like, I was mad about that because like, what do you mean attempted? Like I tried and I couldn't do it. So am I a failure? It was like, like it was, it was, it's a whole, you don't even want to go there. That's a whole different story. Yeah. And, uh, but that, that's what it was. Yeah. Okay. I, okay. I know how to do that. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I guess, you know, I, I already know that Sarah knows how to bury a body. I guess if I need anything on. I'm just going to go to Sarah. He knows, how to, he knows how to get the body to bury it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, okay, Sarah. <laughs> um, so the, um, the day of, or during the trial, um, were you, because he, um, BTK actually, um, for anybody who didn't pay any attention to the trial at all, like, detailed I mean detailed the the killings that he did did you sit in there for that yeah I did and I'll, I'll say this about that whole situation when he I had never heard or read a word of any of this about BTK for 20 years and you didn't know killed. you didn't know what I didn't happened know to any, the other victims I didn't know I have any idea how they died or anything and when he described how he killed my little my baby sister Josephine, and how old was Josephine? It, she was five. Uh, she was uh, eleven. Eleven. Okay. Okay. When he described how he did it, that feeling that I had way back in the first day, where my chest was ripped wide open and my heart was pulled, that pain, that physical pain, it wasn't a I think pain. It was a real pounding pain. It came back in court. And that's when I decided I was going to do what I was going to do to him. Absolutely. And that pain, actually, you know, um, we talk about um, uh, broken heart, like people can die from a broken heart and stuff like that. There's actually a, an actual heart attack. Do you know how to say, is it Takisobo? Is that how you actually say Takisobo is the actual um, type of heart attack that people have from a broken heart? And it can actually kill you. I mean, like it can I, actually. I know somebody that happened to. Yeah. And so, um, you know, when they talk about 
um, you know, oh, he died of a broken heart. Well, it was, was Taki Filbo probably, to be honest. But, you know, those pains and stuff like that, that's real. That's that's a visceral reaction. And of course, it took you back to that day. It took you back to that moment um, when you found out about everything because you had that visceral reaction, you know, and it took BTK how many years? 30, 30 years. 30 years. Oh, yeah, it was 30 years on the dot. Yeah. 30 years to get caught. Um, and so of course it took you 30 years. 30, 31, because he came, oh, that's he, came right. he came out and 30 years when, after when, the, when they did the 30th anniversary question, Robert Bade or something, somebody said, Whatever happened to and he came out and said, Hey, I'm still here. I'm still here. And he started dropping mementos yeah. around Wichita. Yeah. And then a month scared later, scared the living shit out of everybody that lived here. Yeah. He motivated me to get out of prison and get over there, get to get here. Get Wichita. here. I, all I could think about was getting through my parole and getting over here to get my hands on him. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the the moment that you, you found your religion again and you decided, I, I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, I'm not going to go through with this plan. Was that kind of what the moment you kind of came back and started kind of a different path in life? It, it definitely is like the moment I, my world changed. Yeah. Okay. I had a kind of like, you know, you're in your prison, you go to jail, you go to church because it's something to do, get out of the cell. Right. And so you you play the, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of like a really I found guy. God. Yeah. And, yeah. I'll never be the same, you know, and I'll never do that again, kind of a deal. And I, I, I was living there, but I wasn't, I, I didn't feel the way I do now. In my heart now, there is no question there is a God and he is there to answer our prayers. Um, he may not answer them the way we want, but they get answered because with this new found, uh, Christianity, you know, uh, you know, what was that term they say? A born again Christian? Yes. Well, you know, to be a born again Christian, you have to have lost, truly lost your religion. And I truly did. So now that I have this newfound outlook, I can look back with hindsight at all of the things that happened to me before. And I can see here's your sign, Charlie. And I missed it over. I can I can tell you 10 stories of how the Lord was sitting there barking at me and, and I was missing it. And so now I, I, when, when my son was hit, I, I told God, I said, God, if you say, I'll give you my, I'll, I'll trade you my life for my son. What do you want me to do? I'll do anything. I'll, I'll die right now. Kill me. if I'll save my son. So I didn't die. Thank God. Um, he left me. He, Obviously left, me, still here. he left me to do it in another way. So now I go out and speak to um, prisons, jails, juvenile detention centers, um, recovery groups, uh, revivals. I, I speak to people about hope and, and about redemption, about turning your life around and becoming a, a viable member of society as compared to a detrimental member of society, which I was for so long. I mean, you know, I, I just... I didn't have a whole lot of pluses on my side growing, you know, as an outlaw for the 30 years that I was. But now when I go and speak, I have members in the audience come to me and ask for permission from the guards and stuff to talk to me. And it's like 
they tell me like they've been trying to figure out a way to get to this guy and you walk in the door and he tells you everything now we know how to deal with him this is your calling and so i'm like well this is what lord must want me to do because i get this over and over again where somebody will come out of the group and if i believe i feel like if i can get one person to not get out of the joint and go kill a family then i've been successful in what i promised god to do for to god and and I'm happy with the idea that maybe, maybe one of these days I will help somebody think it out before they act and save somebody from a lot of pain like I got. And, you know, we talked to, in the beginning about, you know, the ACE study and the ACE score and how it kind of determines your, your physical path in life sometimes if you don't, you know, kind of... Um, uh, get help in the beginning and, and figure out that kind of stuff and uh we did charlie's ace score and what was your ace score zero zero so we do put a lot, a lot of weight in the ace study um and but again the ace studies questions um don't determine necessarily a hundred percent of the time when you have a massive one massive childhood experience one massive event in in your childhood and your brain is not developed enough because your brains don't develop males brains don't develop until age 25 and females are 21 and so the more onslaught that you have we've always thought is the more likely it is going to change the structure of your brain but when you have one huge event like that of course it's going to change the structure of your brain it's going to change the way that you live and you move and you think because how could it not, right? Um, and so I think we do, you know, we do look at the ACE study, we do look at the ACE score and things like that, but looking at that neurobiology and how you reacted in that moment and in those moments um, and understand those things, I think is what can help everybody move forward because we, you know, we notice that you didn't have any sort of therapy or any guidance or any counseling in the beginning. And, you know, and I, I, I say that when people ask me that kind of question, well, how'd you do what I feel sorry for you. And, you know, I tell them this, what don't kill you makes you stronger. And I'm an elephant. Except for a bear, a bear will kill you, even though it may make you stronger. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but in the, in that moment and in, in, you know, in those times and everything, um, you, we, you know, we noticed, like I said, that you didn't have any sort of immediate, um, assistance to build those, that resiliency, right? Also, um, you'll notice throughout Charlie's experience that there was no advocacy offered. And now granted, like this was, what year was this? 1974. I was going to say five. I knew I was going to be wrong, though. So 1974. And so the use of advocacy back in the 70s, obviously, was not something that was a priority like it is today. Um, but even when you came back for the trial, I don't think that the advocacy was offered at that point either. Never. Um, Dr. So, Oz did. We offered help. Yeah. Yeah. So Charlie got to go with the Dr. Oz show. Um, and so... I think a couple of those key pieces, and then kind of like you said too, I think it's really important that you're going out to give people hope, but I also love that you go and speak to criminal justice courses, because 
not to say anything bad about that officer that day, but that response that, like you said, like they can drop all those little seeds, right? You were a fertile ground at that minute. You were a sponge and you were going to take everything in. And in that moment, the one thing that they said to you was the worst thing they could have said to you. And, you know, again, police, police force um, and police training has changed quite a bit since 1974. Um, And Morgan and I work very hard to try and get into police academies to try and teach, you know, how to talk to people and the neurobiology of trauma and all of that kind of stuff. Um, But I think that that's very important to touch on because would those, and the answer is we have no idea, but would those key pieces have been any help at all yeah. to change the way that- When I do the criminal justice speaking, um, that's my 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 uh, goal is to make them think about how they treat witnesses because mm-hmm. a witness is also a victim because he's they're victimized by- just being there and seeing what goes down. And so, you know, I try to uh, tell if you're going to become a cop or a detective or something, and when you show up to a, a, a bloody situation, whatever, and you got witnesses, think twice before you ask a question. And remember that these people are victimized also. They're not only witnesses that can be, are, that are, they're victims, and you could be victimizing them even more right. with the wrong uh, attitude or the wrong questions. But I felt it and, and it stuck with me. And I was blessed to be able to look back and see that and correct my attitude because I can see it, but I couldn't see it before. No, well, you were 14, 15. Yeah. You know what I mean? You were a teenager. Or even through my outlaw years. Common phone care is um, something that Morgan and I teach. Uh, and actually Morgan wrote her thesis on trauma-informed care. And what it is, is it's this, this idea, it's these five principles on um, six, I'm sorry, thank you, six principles on how to interact with somebody who's had trauma in their life. But what we also know is that everybody has had trauma in their life. So these are, we teach it a lot to the police department and to the hospitals because um, we have to try to understand as healthcare workers, as law enforcement officers, as first responders, that when we're um, engaging with a patient or engaging with a victim or even a suspect uh, for that matter, the more kind of respect you come at with them and um, the the way that you approach them and the way that you treat them, the more likely they are to give you what you need and what you want. And in fact, in my trauma-informed care lecture that I give to the police, I always say like, why does this matter? And the next slide says, do you want answers or not? Because if you want answers, then you come to them in this this idea of creating a safe space and speaking with them in a respectful manner um, and, you know, those kind of things. And you would be more likely to have, if that that police officer had been trauma-informed whenever they talked to you that day, you would have been more likely to have probably had a, a much better experience from then on and right. especially with officers you right. know what I mean it may not have changed the way that you dealt with the trauma later on in life but it definitely would have shaped how you felt about law and law enforcement oh yeah 
I believe that. What else you got? I know that. Mogan. Do you have questions, uh, by the way? Uh, any yeah. ideas of any questions that uh, you you think that the audience might ask? Um, I think the one that I the one that thing that I wrote down was um like you knew exactly what to do. Did you did you feel like you went on autopilot or did you feel like you were you had organized thinking where it wasn't like chaotic, but you just knew from you know your dad creating those habits in you what to do. No, my dad told me exactly what to do if he, if my mom and him were killed. And we this conversation we had, the story is so wild. It, I mean, it, it is so wild. You, I can't begin to explain to you. We don't have enough time. Um, <laughs> that I knew what to do. My dad knew his life was in danger. Okay, and they're trying to tell me that BTK picked my family out of the blue and killed my them. It's a, that's a farce. Okay. That's not what really happened. My dad was an OSI working for the OSI and it was a hit. I believe it was a hit squad game to the house. And at, at BTK was just a local that they were using for eyes and he got off on it and became a serial killer. Interesting. Oh, wow. I, can, I, 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 I could tell you, a I, I have a hundred questions. Answer one. And I'll change how I think, and nobody can answer one. And everything that anybody ever tells me proves my uh, only reinforces my theory of what went down. I have never had anything go down in the last 30 years that would make me think that maybe I'm wrong. And all I have is things come up that reinforce what I believe over and over, even to this. Just like in, out of the blue, things will come up like a month ago, two months ago, just things come up and it just reinforces what I believe. And Well, and I, I thought I, it was, it was really interesting how you talked about how you were treated after everything happened, like the security that you had, where you were taken, how you were, like all of those things, like that's, to me, that's not a normal way to handle well, something here, like this. Here's my point, Okay. Okay, when my family was killed, one of the first theories that was out there was that my dad was working with the cartels and helping move dope. Okay, now, my family was flown on Air Force One, not Air Force Two, not Air Force Three, Air Force One from Wichita, Kansas to Puerto Rico. The Kennedy had it arranged for the press from the president's plane to take my family who would even think that the government might let a suspected drug dealer be flown on air force one right? yeah of course yeah uh, and you know why you know why they the only reason the only way that they would let that happen was if they knew what my dad was doing and it had to be a positive thing for the government that's the only way. If they had any question as to what my dad's motives and why he was killed, or they had any question about it, they would not have allowed that. Right now, I agree with they, that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I know the truth. I heard a phone call on Christmas Day. My dad kicked me out of my bedroom. I was downstairs, you know, because I was a macho. I had my own room. He kicked me out of my room. He took the phone in there, and I heard him tell somebody he'd been working for the OSI. And at that point. 
I I was like a sneaky little kid listening to the phone conversation. I freaked out about what I was hearing. I can't even tell you what I heard after that. And I went and sat down on the That's couch. That's the neurobiology of trauma. Also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't tell you a word after I heard that. But when we were in the courtroom 30-something years later, they had a giant timeline on the board for where the families were. And it has a uh, raider comes to Wichita, blah, 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 blah. Somebody gets killed. They're on a giant timeline that went all the way around the top of the ceiling. Okay, my phone call was on that timeline. The phone call from the hotel. The, no, the phone call from my bedroom, oh, from bedroom that my dad made on Christmas Day. Whoa. That phone call, why? Who says that was important? Right. They didn't, they won't even admit that my dad worked for the OSI. The government won't even admit it. Interesting. Hmm. Oh, there's so much more than that. <laughs> and I could send you for hours. Right. So That's what he's saying. He doesn't have enough time for that. I know. <laughs> Charlie, thank you for sharing with me. Yeah, yeah thanks for coming. Yeah. I'm sure I just added more questions to your mind. And... 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. 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 But I, I, I appreciate just being in your company and being able to ask some of those questions because I know that it's probably hard for you to, to talk about it and relive, you know, relive those experiences. You know, when I started doing this, when I started going out and speaking, um, the first time I ever did it was uh, here in Wichita at uh, Orpheum Theater. They showed my movie, I Survived BTK, and in front of 500 people. And then they asked me if I wanted to do a question and answer period afterward. And I said, sure, why not? And, you know, and um, it was it was therapeutic for me to have to think about all these different questions people were throwing at me to make me think about what I had chose to feel or do uh, with each of those questions so it was like therapy for me and like every time I speak point point is I uh I went and spoke first time I ever spoke to a religious group it was a freedom from meth rally okay I go over to it and we ride over me and Linda uh, Sarah's mom ride a motorcycle with no gas no money my, my EBT card doesn't work, right, at a gas station. We're almost out of gas. And I said, we're just going to let the Lord do this for us, and we're just going to ride and do it. So we went and did it. I spoke for two hours in a thunder, lightning, gusty, crazy atmosphere in a tent, tent billowing, no water, no lightning where we're at. I spoke for two hours, and when I was done, people were crying and praying and yelling and um, a pastor came up to me and was like, will you come to Joplin and do what you just did? And I told him, I said, I can't. And he goes, why? You don't want to? He says, no, I can't. He goes, why can't you? He says, because I don't know what I did. I don't remember one word once I opened my mouth. Right. Two hours, not word. I can't remember a word. Yeah. I, some, uh, there's been times when I've, when I've done, got up in front of people and my brain's like, hey, yo, we're going to protect you from whatever you're experiencing. So that's that's really interesting because that's your brain again turning on and being like, ooh, hey, I don't want you to remember this, so I'm gonna allow you to speak without remembering what you did. That's insane. Yeah, our brains are amazing. Yeah, so. uh, but it's so therapeutic sometimes just to get it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and to say it, you know. Do well, you think? Do you think now that any kind of therapy would benefit you? Uh, I think I'm pretty 
pretty much uh, got it under control. Really, I, I, I do. I don't see how it would uh, shed any light as to how I feel and what I what think I need to do. I think I'm on that path already and I just need to work at it. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully this, what Sarah and, and, and I are doing and what we are all three doing and, and, and maybe in the future might help get me back to where I want to go with the, the um, speaking, the public the motivational speaking. speaking. It kind yeah. of fell out during COVID, obviously. Of course, nobody, yeah. Nobody was speaking during COVID. So, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of um, not wrenching for a living yeah. and, <laughs> for the rest of my life, at least. Right. And, and help, mostly it's about helping people. You know, like I really felt really good whenever I go to a juvenile hall, talking to a little kid, I, I did my my spiel. A little kid comes up to me and says, man, I know exactly how you felt. I know exactly how you feel. I said, why? He said, because I, I uh, broke into a house and stole a gun from somebody. And I said, well, you, why'd you do that? You think your mom's going to be? And he said, I did it because I wanted to shoot the man who killed my mom and brother in front of me. This was a seven-year-old kid, okay? And he's telling me this. I told him, do you think your mom would be happy seeing you in here with your little orange jumpsuit and your little sneakers? For, and that's all you got to look forward to for the rest of your life? You think you're doing her justice? He says, you need to get, he goes, I can do it. I can do it. I can change. And then when I got finished with it, the the um, youth worker, social worker comes to him and goes, we didn't know that. They didn't know that he had broken into a house to get a gun to get revenge. They thought he was just breaking into a house. But this little seven-year-old knew he was breaking into a cop's house and knew he was going to get the gun because he wanted revenge. And they just thought he was just being a little burglar. And that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, that's being trauma-informed, right? Like, right. I think that is a really important thing to understand is that a lot of times when we do things, it's related to the experiences that we've had in the past and how we're feeling um, right now. And, you know, I think what I'm hearing is that speaking and doing these things and helping people fills your tank and it helps you feel fulfilled. And I think that that's really important for you to feel, especially from all of the trauma that you've experienced in your life. So. Yeah. 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 So I, I hope to continue it. I, yeah. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen. We'll we'll help in any way possible. Shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. so, listen. Morgan and I sign each other to speak, signing each other up to speak. All let's the just time. be real. Sarah <laughs> does that shit way more than I do. I, I do. I do. I sign like, her up for all sorts of shit all the time. I'm like, yeah. hi. Don't be mad at me. But I'm like, what did you sign me up for now? What are we doing? Now? <laughs> we're gonna speak at this, and we're gonna do this. <laughs> But she's my favorite person to speak with and to present yeah. with. So I am really, really, really excited to sit and listen to this and just see how people are affected by, you know, looking at trauma from a different lens. Because this, this presents it as a different lens, not what we normally talk about in people's experience. Because, of course, you, you, you can understand, like, why the ACE study would give somebody trauma, but you don't think about maybe somebody with an ACE score of zero and experiencing such a significant event like this right. so i'm really really excited yeah cool do you want to do social medias i'm putting uh, you on the spot uh yeah we can do social medias you can um you can email us at do i make you uncomfortable at gmail.com uh, our, <laughs> our instagram because the only one i really remember our instagram is do uncomfortable nope. at, dang nope. it, at, <laughs> dang nope. it. what is it 
Do I make you uncomfortable 2015? Oh, that's the Instagram? That's Instagram. Twitter is do uncomfortable. At do uncomfortable. At do uncomfortable. Dang it, I was thinking Twitter and I said Instagram. Um, Instagram is do I make you uncomfortable 2015 and Facebook is do I make you uncomfortable. You guys can reach us on any of those platforms. You can send us DMs. You can make suggestions. You can throw some questions in there for Charlie if you'd like to. We can, you know, get them down and then we can have him answer them or maybe we can have you on again and where it's not so formal and you guys aren't doing a presentation and we can just chat. But um, those are our social medias and we hope you really enjoyed this session, please take care of yourself and we will talk at you soon. Goodbye. Bye.